Chapter Thirty One of Izzy Popenjoy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Srigley, Charlottesville, Virginia, USA. Izzy Popenjoy by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Thirty One. The Marquis migrates to London. Soon after Mr. Stokes' visit, there was a great disturbance at Manor Cross. Whether caused or not by that event, no one was able to say. The Marquis and all the family were about to proceed to London. The news first reached Cross Hall through Mrs. Toff, who still kept up friendly relations with a portion of the English establishment at the Great House. There probably was no idea of maintaining a secret on the subject, the Marquis and his wife, with Lord Popenjoy, and the servants, could not have had themselves carried up to town without the knowledge of all Brotherton. Nor was there any adequate reason for supposing that secrecy was desired. Nevertheless, Mrs. Toff made a great deal of the matter, and the ladies at Cross Hall were not without a certain perturbed interest as though in a mystery. It was first told to Lady Sarah for Mrs. Toff was quite aware of the position of things, and knew that the old Marchioness herself was not to be regarded as being on their side. "'Yes, my lady, it's quite true,' said Mrs. Toff. "'The horses is ordered for next Friday.' This was said on the previous Saturday, so that considerable time was allowed for the elucidation of the mystery. "'And the things is already being packed, and her ladyship, that is, if she is her ladyship, is taking every dress and every rag as she brought with her. Where are they going to, Toff, not to the square? Now, the Marquis of Brotherton had an old family house in Cavendish Square, which, however, had been shut up for the last ten or fifteen years, but was still known as the family house by all the adherents of the family. No, my lady, I did hear from one of the servants that they are going to Scumberg's Hotel in Albemarle Street. Then Lady Sarah told the news to her mother. The poor old lady felt that she was ill-used. She had been at any rate true to her eldest son, had always taken his part during his absence by scolding her daughters whenever an allusion was made to the family at Manor Cross, and had almost worshipped him when he would come to her on Sunday. And now he was going off to London without saying a word to her of the journey. "'I don't believe that Toff knows anything about it,' she said. "'Toff is a nasty meddling creature, and I wish she had not come here at all.' The management of the Marchioness under these circumstances was very difficult, but Lady Sarah was a woman who allowed no difficulty to crush her. She did not expect the world to be very easy. She went on with her constant needle— trying to comfort her mother as she worked. At this time the Marchioness had almost brought herself to quarrel with her younger son, and would say very hard things about him and about the dean. She had more than once said that Mary was a nasty, sly thing, and had expressed herself as greatly aggrieved by that marriage. All this came, of course, from the Marquis, and was known by her daughters to come from the Marquis, and yet the Marchioness had never as yet been allowed to see either her daughter-in-law or Popenjoy. 
On the following day her son came to her when the three sisters were at church in the afternoon. On these occasions he would stay for a quarter of an hour, and would occupy the greater part of the time in abusing the dean and Lord George. But on this day she could not refrain from asking him a question. "'Are you going up to London, Brotherton?' "'What makes you ask?' "'Because they tell me so. Sarah says that the servants are talking about it.' "'I wish Sarah had something to do better than listening to the servants.' "'But you are going?' "'If you want to know, I believe we shall go up to town for a few days. Popenjoy ought to see a dentist, and I want to do a few things. Why the deuce shouldn't I go up to London as well as anyone else?' "'Of course, if you wish it.' "'To tell you the truth, I don't much wish anything except to get out of this cursed country again.' "'Don't say that, Brotherton. You are an Englishman.' "'I am ashamed to say I am. I wish with all my heart that I had been born a Chinese or a Red Indian.' This he said not in furtherance of any peculiar cosmopolitan proclivities, but because the saying of it would vex his mother. "'What am I to think of the country when the moment I get here I am hounded by all my own family?' because I choose to live after my own fashion, and not after theirs. I haven't hounded you. No, you might possibly get more by being on good terms with me than bad, and so might they, if they knew it. I'll be even with Master George before I've done with him, and I'll be even with that parson, too, who still smells of the stables. I'll lead him a dance that will about ruin him. And as for his daughter— it wasn't I got up the marriage, Brotherton. I don't care who got it up, but I can have inquiries made as well as another person. I'm not very fond of spies, but if other people use spies, so can I too. That young woman is no better than she ought to be. The dean, I dare say, knows it, but he shall know that I know it, and Master George shall know what I think about it. As there is to be war, he shall know what it is to have war. She has got a lover of her own already, and everybody who knows them is talking about it. Oh, Brotherton! And she is going in for women's rights. George has made a nice thing of it for himself. He has to live on the dean's money, so that he doesn't dare call his soul his own, and yet he's fool enough to send a lawyer to me, to tell me that my wife is a blank and my son a blank. He made use of very plain language, so that the poor old woman was horrified and aghast and dumbfounded, and as he spoke the words there was a rage in his eyes worse than anything she had seen before. He was standing with his back to the fire, which was burning, though the weather was warm, and the tails of his coat were hanging over his arms as he kept his hands in his pockets. He was generally quiescent in his moods, and apt to express his anger in sarcasm rather than in outspoken language. But now he was so much moved that he was unable not to give vent to his feelings. As the Marchioness looked at him, shaking with fear, there came into her distracted mind some vague idea of Cain and Abel, though had she collected her thoughts she would have been far from telling herself that her eldest son was Cain. "'He thinks,' continued the Marquis, "'that because I have lived abroad I shan't mind that sort of thing.' I wonder how he'll feel when I tell him the truth about his wife. I mean to do it, and what the dean will think when I use a little plain language 
about his daughter. I mean to do that, too. I shan't mince matters. I suppose you have heard of Captain de Baron, mother. Now, the Marchioness unfortunately had heard of Captain de Baron. Lady Susanna had brought the tidings down to Cross Hall. Had Lady Susanna really believed that her sister-in-law was wickedly entertaining a lover, there would have been some reticence in her mode of alluding to so dreadful a subject. The secret would have been confided to Lady Sarah in awful conclave, and some solemn warning would have been conveyed to Lord George, with a prayer that he would lose no time in withdrawing the unfortunate young woman from evil influences. But Lady Susanna had entertained no such fear. Mary was young and foolish, and fond of pleasure, hard as was this woman in her manner, and disagreeable as she made herself, yet she could, after a fashion, sympathize with the young wife. She had spoken of Captain de Baron with disapprobation, certainly, but had not spoken of him as a fatal danger. And she had spoken also of the Baroness Bandman, and Mary's folly in going to the Institute. The old Marchioness had heard of these things, and now when she heard further of them from her son, she almost believed all that he told her. "'Don't be hard on poor George,' she said. "'I give as I get, mother. I'm not one of those who return good for evil. Had he left me alone, I should have left him alone. As it is, I rather think I shall be hard upon poor George. Do you suppose that all Brotherton hasn't heard already what they are doing?' that there is a man or a woman in the county who doesn't know that my own brother is questioning the legitimacy of my own son, and then you ask me not to be hard. It isn't my doing, Brotherton. But those three girls have their hand in it. That's what they call charity. That's what they go to church for. All this made the poor old Marchioness very ill. Before her son left her, she was almost prostrate and yet to the end he did not spare her. But as he left, he said one word which apparently was intended to comfort her. Perhaps Popenjoy had better be brought here for you to see before he is taken up to town. There had been a promise made before that the child should be brought to the hall to bless his grandmother. On this occasion she had been too much horrified and overcome by what had been said to urge her request. But when the proposition was renewed by him, of course, she assented. Popenjoy's visit to Cross Hall was arranged with a good deal of state, and was made on the following Tuesday. On Monday there came a message to say that the child should be brought up at twelve on the following day. The Marquis was not coming himself, and the child would, of course, be inspected by all the ladies. At noon they were assembled in the drawing-room, but they were kept there waiting for half an hour, during which the Marchioness repeatedly expressed her conviction that now, at the last moment, she was to be robbed of the one great desire of her heart. "'He won't let him come, because he's so angry with George,' she said, sobbing. "'He wouldn't have sent a message yesterday, mother,' said Lady Amelia, "'if he hadn't meant to send him.' "'You are also very unkind to him,' ejaculated the marchioness but at half-past twelve the cortege appeared the child was brought up in a perambulator which had at first been pushed by the under-nurse an italian and accompanied by the upper nurse who was of course an italian also with them had been sent one of the englishmen to show the way 
Perhaps the two women had been somewhat ill-treated, as no true idea of the distance had been conveyed to them. And though they had now been some weeks at Manor Cross, they had never been half so far from the house. Of course the labour of the perambulator had soon fallen to the man, but the two nurses, who had been forced to walk a mile, had thought that they would never come to the end of their journey. When they did arrive, they were full of plaints, which, however, no one could understand. But Popenjoy was at last brought into the hall. "'My darling,' said the Marchioness, putting out both her arms, but Popenjoy, though a darling, screamed frightfully beneath his heap of clothes. "'You had better let him come into the room, mamma," said Lady Susanna. Then the nurse carried him in, and one or two of his outer garments were taken from him. "'Dear me, how black he is!' said Lady Susanna. The Marchioness turned upon her daughter in great anger. "'The Germains were always dark,' she said. "'You're dark yourself, quite as black as he is.' "'My darling!' She made another attempt to take the boy, but the nurse, with voluble eloquence, explained something which, of course, none of them understood. The purport of her speech was an assurance that Tabo, as she most unceremoniously called the child, whom no Germain thought of naming otherwise than as Popenjoy, never would go to any foreigner. The nurse, therefore, held him up to be looked at for two minutes, while he still screamed, and then put him back into his covering raiments. "'He is very black,' said Lady Sarah, severely. "'So are some people's hearts,' said the Marchioness, with a vigour for which her daughters had hardly given her credit. This, however, was borne without a murmur by the three sisters. On the Friday the whole family, including all the Italian servants, migrated to London, and it certainly was the case that the lady took with her all her clothes and everything that she had brought with her. Toff had been quite right there, and when it came to be known by the younger ladies at Cross Hall that Toff had been right, they argued from the fact that their brother had concealed something of the truth when saying that he intended to go up to London only for a few days. There had been three separate carriages, and Toff was almost sure that the Italian lady had carried off more than she had brought with her. So exuberant had been the luggage. It was not long before Toff effected an entrance into the house, and brought away a report that very many things were missing. "'The two little gilt cream jugs is gone,' she said to Lady Sarah, "'and the miniature with the pearl settings out of the yellow drawing-room.' Lady Sarah explained that as these things were the property of her brother, he or his wife might, of course, take them away, if so pleased." "'She's got them unbeknownst to my lord, my lady,' said Toff, shaking her head. "'I could only just scurry through with half an eye, but when I comes to look there will be more, I warrant you, my lady.' The Marquis had expressed so much vehement dislike of everything about his English home, and it had become so generally understood that his Italian wife hated the place, that everybody agreed that they would not come back. Why should they? What did they get by living there?' The lady had not been outside the house a dozen times, and only twice beyond the park gate. The Marquis took no share in any county or any country pursuit. He went to no man's house, and received no visitors. He would not see the tenants when they came to him, and had not even returned a visit except Mr. de Baron's. Why had he come there at all? That was the question which all the Brothershire people asked of each other, and which no one could answer. 
Mr. Price suggested that it was just devilry to make everybody unhappy. Mrs. Toff thought that it was the woman's doing because she wanted to steal silver mugs, miniatures, and such-like treasures. Mr. Waddy, the vicar of the parish, said that it was a trial, having probably some idea in his own mind that the Marquis had been sent home by Providence as a sort of precious blister which would purify all concerned in him by counter-irritation. The old Marchioness still conceived that it had been brought about that a grandmother might take delight in the presence of her grandchild. Dr. Putner said that it was impudence. But the dean was of opinion that it had been deliberately planned with the view of passing off a supposititious child upon the property and title. The dean, however, kept his opinion very much to himself. Of course, tidings of the migration were sent to Munster Court. Lady Sarah wrote to her brother, and the dean wrote to his daughter. "'What shall you do, George? Shall you go and see him?' "'I don't know what I shall do.' "'Ought I to go?' certainly not you could only call on her and she has not even seen my mother and sisters when i was there he would not introduce me to her though he sent for the child i suppose i had better go i do not want to quarrel with him if i can help it you have offered to do everything together with him if only he would let you i must say that your father has driven me on in a manner which brotherton would be sure to resent Papa has done everything from a sense of duty, George. Perhaps so. I don't know how that is. It is very hard sometimes to divide a sense of duty from one's own interest, but it has made me very miserable, very wretched indeed. Oh, George, is it my fault? No, not your fault. If there is one thing worse to me than another, it is the feeling of being divided from my own family. Brotherton has behaved badly to me very badly and yet i would give anything to be on good terms with him i think i shall go and call he is at an hotel in albemarle street i have done nothing to deserve ill of him if he knew all it should of course be understood that lord george did not at all know the state of his brother's mind towards him except as it had been exhibited at that one interview which had taken place between them at manor cross he was aware that in every conversation which he had had with the lawyers, both with Mr. Battle and Mr. Stokes, he had invariably expressed himself as desirous of establishing the legitimacy of the boy's birth. If Mr. Stokes had repeated to his brother what he had said, and had done him the justice of explaining that in all that he did, he was simply desirous of performing his duty to the family, surely his brother would not be angry with him? At any rate, it would not suit him to be afraid of his brother, and he went to the hotel. After being kept waiting in the hall for about ten minutes, the Italian courier came down to him. The Marquis at the present moment was not dressed, and Lord George did not like being kept waiting. Would Lord George call at three o'clock on the following day? Lord George said that he would, and was again at Scumberg's Hotel at three o'clock on the next afternoon. End of chapter 31